The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 115, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. We're in Deuteronomy 32. This is the beginning of the Song of Moses. We're going to go through verses 1 through 6. This is entitled the Song of Moses, part 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass, for I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children. Because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation, do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Before I begin the sermon, I'd like to tell you that the next five sermons are going to be similar to this one. They're a little bit complicated because the Hebrew is very obscure but to me, it was one of the most exciting adventures I've ever had in typing sermons from Genesis 1-1 until now in Deuteronomy 32. These five sermons took as much mental effort as anything I can remember over the past 10 years. But they are astonishing to me, and I hope you will think it's the same. Of our passage today, the John Lang commentary correctly states, Genesis 49 is the prophetic life picture of of the future of Israel. 
Israel's position in the world is the prophetic element in this song. Moses will describe the future of Israel as they stand before the Lord and among the nations of the world in exacting detail. It is such an accurate description of what lies ahead that it provides a roadmap for pretty much all of their future. Much of it sadly, but ultimately happily. The words Moses uses, the phraseology he employs, and the concepts that he puts forth are so magnificent in the original that it is more delightful than reading the finest novel or the most beautiful poetry. This is noted by Jameson Fawcett Brown. They say the magnificence of the exordium, the grandeur of the theme, the frequent and sudden transitions, the elevated strain of the sentiments and language entitle this song to be ranked among the noblest specimens of poetry to be found in the scriptures. The next few weeks will be quite an adventure if you really love the details. If you don't, I'm sorry in advance. In this, we will be looking at a written form and structure that can be difficult and even puzzling at times. Like many poems, the words can be hard to grasp at first, but with careful thought, none of what is said is beyond the ability to discern Moses' actual intent. What is exciting, though, is that, like much of Scripture, there is a prophetic element to what is penned right here. If we know the Bible, and we also understand the world around us concerning the nation of Israel, much of what Moses says is, at least in content, like reading a current newspaper. Our text verse comes from Psalm 90. It is verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As with the Song of Moses, the 90th Psalm was also penned by Moses. So you can see the similarities in thought that he pens in both. And yet, both were inspired by the Lord. As such, one can see this connecting hand of the Lord just as throughout all of the rest of Scripture. He is the one who is there at the beginning. His years are without end, and all things come from Him and are sustained by Him. Thus, as we contemplate the Word of God with each passage we read, we are considering His mind, His intents, and His purposes for us. As for the Song of Moses, it carries those same designs— but it is in a special form that is tragically lost with many older translations. The New King James Version, regardless of the accuracy of the translation, at least put it in a more proper format. Of this, Adam Clark notes the following. On the inimitable excellence of this ode, much has been written by commentators, critics, and poets, and it is allowed by the best judges to contain a specimen of almost every species of excellence in composition. It is so thoroughly poetic that even the dull Jews themselves found they could not write it in the prose form. And hence, it is distinguished as poetry in every Hebrew Bible by being written in its own hemistics, or short half lines, which is the general form of the Hebrew poetry. And were it translated in the same way, it would be more easily understood. Adam Clark wrote that at a time when it was in block form instead of the way that it should be. And I'll show you what he is talking about. This is the Hebrew Bible. This is what it looks like in the Hebrew Bible. It just goes from, what is this? Right. goes from right to left, okay? And it's all just block. This is the whole Bible is done this way, except certain passages, which you will see it changes in its little hemistics. 
And so if you follow this as the way modern translations do, you will much more readily grasp what is going on because of the way that Moses penned this out for us. So I wanted you to see that, and we'll go on. Some things need to be set forth as they were originally designed. This is true with the Song of Moses. It is good that most newer translations properly form the song so that we can more fully appreciate the beauty of it. We'll get a short breakdown of the chapter, and then we will use that as we begin to look it over today as well as in the sermons to come. As he progresses, Moses will spare no expense in using rare or completely unique words found only here in all of the Bible. This makes it a real treasure to read. Also, as Clark noted, it is broken up into a poetic form that in turn carries in it several other literary forms such as metaphor, parallelism, and so on. Great stuff is to be seen right here in this song. As far as a basic outline, I would submit the following. This is my outline of the song. Verses 1 and 2 are an introduction concerning the words to be conveyed. Verses 3 and 4, as we saw as I was reading the sermon passage, proclaim the perfections of Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel. Verses 5 and 6 provide a contrast by noting the imperfections of Israel. Verses 7 through 14 speak of the calling, establishment, and exalting of the nation. Verses 15 through 18 tell of Israel's abandonment of Jehovah because of prosperity and ease, leading to apostasy from him and to false gods. I'll stop right there and say, think of where America is in that scenario right now. Verses 19 through 25 bring out Jehovah's rejection of Israel, his turning from them and his judgment upon them. But in this time of rejecting them, verse 21 alludes to his plan to lure Israel back to himself through his active turning to another group of people. Verses 26 and 27 detail the reason for Jehovah's sparing and not utterly destroying the disobedient nation, the safeguarding of his own honor and glory. Verses 28 through 33 detail the evident nature of Israel's unworthiness to be spared. As such, it highlights the very fact that they are spared. Verses 34 through 38 reveal the wisdom of allowing Israel to be brought to a state of utter calamity when all of the other gods fail to deliver. It is to verse 39, which reveals that Jehovah has, through his interaction with Israel, demonstrated that he is God alone. Verses 40 through 42 call out the judgment of the nations for failing to recognize what God has done. That's called the tribulation period, if you're not aware of that, which is manifestly evident through his treatment, meaning his establishment, care for, spurning of, punishment upon, sparing, and defense of Israel. Verse 43 is a final climactic call to the world who knows Jehovah, that he has kept his covenant promises to this nation of disobedience by providing them the atonement that they do not in fact, deserve. I do hope that you will enjoy the coming sermons based on this passage. It's going to be five sermons. If you aren't going to be here, I would hope that you would watch all five. It is a marvelous part of God's superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three individual thoughts for you today. The first is give ear 
and hear. It is verses 1 and 2. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Ha'azinu ha'shamayim ve'adeberah. Give ear, you, the heavens, and I will speak. This is a literal translation, but the way the Hebrew is structured, it gives the sense of give ear, you, the heavens, so then I will speak. When the first occurs, the next will take place. Okay, I'm going to stop right there, and I want to tell you something. I translated every verse of this particular song, okay? It's in the most literal form possible, and I'll explain this again, but after we finish these sermons, I will read you the entire poem in the form that I put it in, which is going to be very hard to understand, but it will help you see the the beautiful structure of it. And we'll do that in the last sermon, okay? But for now, Moses uses what is known as a prosopopeia. It is a literary device where an abstract thing is personified. In calling for these bodies to give ear, it is as if they were to listen carefully to the words he will speak. In them, we have an immediate fulfillment of the words from last week. Deuteronomy 31, 28, Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Moses is the speaker. And yet, as the song proceeds, the words will be Moses quoting the very thoughts of the Lord, such as in verses 20 through 35. And again, in verses 37 through 42, Moses' words are words of the covenant, and they will provide insights into the very mind of God as he reveals his glory in and through the nation right there before Moses. The heavens are called forth to witness what will be said. Further, verse 1 continues, And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. And hear the earth words my mouth. This was also mentioned by Moses when he said, and call heaven and earth to witness. Together, they form the sum of the witness, meaning all of creation. As this is exactly what Moses said he would do, the commentary from last week necessarily needs to be restated. Next couple paragraphs will be something I took from last week's sermon. In calling for the heavens and the earth to witness, he is not calling for judgment, but for witnesses that will testify to the just nature of the coming judgment and punishment. It takes us back to the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth themselves are being likened to the surety of the covenant, of which the song is a prophetic anticipation of how Israel will conduct itself before the Lord in relation to this covenant. When Moses calls the heavens and the earth to witness against Israel, it is not speaking of calling those who dwell in the heavens or those who dwell on the earth to be witnesses. Rather, it is saying that even the heavens and the earth are the witnesses. As evident as these are to remind us of the existence of God, so shall it be the same when the actions against and for Israel come. Thus, Israel, and indeed all humanity, should then rightfully say, as surely as I am standing on the ground, and as surely as the heavens are above my head, both created by God, so is this punishment deserved. The inanimate heavens and earth metaphorically speak out the obvious reality of what has occurred when Israel fails and is punished. Just as the Lord is the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, he is the initiator and monitor of the covenant with Israel. 
The sediment is not unlike that which is stated in Job chapter 20. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. It is also what David means when he says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And again, this is unmistakably seen in the words of Paul from Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. There's the sun over there. There must be somebody who made it. There's a tree. It didn't make itself. That's what Paul is saying. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Before I go on, I would recommend that if you don't understand Paul's words there, you can go back and watch the Genesis 1-1 sermon. That's all I did the first sermon since we started the books of Moses. I did it on Genesis 1-1, and I talk about how you can know with absolute surety that there is a God, how you can know which God is correct, and how he has revealed himself. And you can know that without ever opening your Bible. You can know those things by understanding the 12 first principles. If you will understand the 12 first principles, you can understand that there is a God and that you are accountable to him. The Bible is here to reveal that God to you. Okay? The very fact that the heavens and the earth exist and that they show order, harmony, and structure demonstrate that God is righteous. They testify to him, to his power, to his faithfulness, to his right to judge, and also to his eternal nature in what he proclaims. This is both a knowledge that should be terrifying to the nation now being addressed, as well as being reassuring to them. Again, this is exactly what the psalmist refers to. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. One can see the parallel nature of this first verse of the song. It's an AA structure. Before I go on, I'll ask you. I did five sermons on the Song of Moses, and you're going to see how I structured these verses, but I'm not a poetic specialist. So if you see that I got the structure wrong in one of these, I would like you to let me know. But this is how I have broken them down so that you can see. I'm not going to do this with every one of them, but I'm going to do it with this one for you. Okay, and I'll show you all of them as we go, but this one I'm going to give a little more explanation on. This is an AA structure. Give ear you the heavens, and I will speak, and hear the earth words my mouth. Give ear you, and the words and hear are parallel. So I put one mark next to each of them. Then the heavens is a positive, and the earth is a negative because they contrast. And I will speak, and the words of my mouth are once again parallel. So you can see it's an AA structure. Okay, as it is so that the heavens and the earth are witnesses, Moses continues his introduction to the song, calling for Israel, and indeed all to whom the word is presented, to pay heed. Verse 2, let my teaching drop as the rain. Ya'arof kamatar likhi. Let drop as the rain my teaching. Two new words are immediately given. 
The first is araf, coming from a primitive root signifying to droop. Something's drooping down, hence it means to drip or to drop as something drips off something drooping. It will be seen only here and in Deuteronomy 33, verse 28. The next is lekach. It signifies a learning or a teaching, whether on the part of the teacher or the hearer. Six of its nine uses will be in the Proverbs. Here, the words of this verse can be tied into the heavens and the earth of verse 1. The heavens are the source of the rain as it descends from above. The earth is what receives what then flows downward from above. The actual intent of Moses' words is very hard to know. It can be translated passively, as in, let my words. If so, Moses is calling for the hearer to listen and to let what he says alight upon him and to begin to fill him. It can be as a petition, may my words. If so, Moses is indicating that the wise person will listen, hear, and begin to understand what is being conveyed. Or it could be as a statement of fact, my words shall. The words will drop slowly at first, word by word. Then they will increase as he speaks until they overflow with the wisdom they contain and until they have revealed all that is to descend from the heavenly realm into the minds of those who hear. Whichever way, the idea is that Moses' teaching will come down, dropping from above to nourish the soul, just as rain drops upon the earth to nourish it. Next, verse 2 continues, my speech distills the dew. Tizal katal imarti, stream as the dew, my speech. The word tal or dew is used. It comes from talal, meaning to cover over, like a roof. In the first clause, the teaching was to drop as the rain. It is a sign of abundance coming down. Now, the speech which carries the teaching is to spread out as the dew, permeating every part of the hearer. Moses next provides parallelism to the first two clauses. Verse 2 continues, as raindrops on the tender herb, kisarim ale deshe, as showers upon the tender grass. Here is a word found only this once in scripture, sair. It signifies rain, as in a drop. The word is formed in the same way as the word sair, or hairy. Being in the plural, it gives the sense of abundance of rain, like the hair flowing on a hairy goat. Due to it being the same form as the word hairy, we are given an additional insight into what is being said in this verse. Hair in the Bible signifies an awareness, especially an awareness of sin as represented in the hairy goat sin offering. Moses' idea is that his words will show the greatness of God contrasted to the corrupted, sinful state of Israel. Moses is imploring his people to see the connection and perceive its meaning. It is as if showers of rain come down upon the newly sprouted grass. The grass will benefit from the rain, and the wise will benefit from the instruction of the speech. Verse 2 continues, and as showers on the grass. And as abundant drops upon the tender herbs. I inserted the word abundant because it has to be that way. It means that, but it's implied, okay? The word revavim, or abundant drops, is introduced here. It comes from ravav, meaning many. So that's why you have to insert the thought of abundant, even though it's not a direct translation. Thus, it is an accumulation of drops, meaning a shower. When the showers alight upon the tender herbs, they will feed from the water and gain nutrients from the soil. The heavens and the earth work together 
to produce a crop that is beneficial to man and to beast. In this case, Moses is imploring or he is affirming that the divine wisdom will be conveyed and that it will be considered so that a mature understanding of it will result. One can see the parallelism between the clauses when they are properly translated. It's an A-A-B-B structure. Let drop as the rain my teaching. That's a heavy, a heavy rain. A again, stream as the dew my speech. That's light. B, as showers upon the tender grass, a heavy rain, B, and as abundant drops upon the tender herbs, it is a light rain. The main force of the words is that of the agency of them being sent in order to produce its intended effect. The resulting effects are a secondary and hopefully anticipated result. The instruction is rained down and then it permeates everything that will receive it. With that in mind, Moses will next exalt the Lord. Seek the Lord and none other always, for he is the rock, faithful and true. Seek out the Lord for all of your days. Hide yourself in him, and he will establish you. His righteousness is near, it is close at hand, and salvation has gone forth from him. Be without fear, for goodness he has planned, loving kindness and mercy, full to the brim. Even overflowing are these things from him, for his righteousness is forever, it has no end. Yes, goodness and mercy overfloweth the brim. On the Lord our God, you can depend. Our second thought today, the rock. It's verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, for I proclaim the name of the Lord. Kishem Yehovah Ekra, for name Yehovah I invoke. The word kara means to call, either actively or passively, to proclaim, to read, and so on. Most translations here use the word proclaim. That would mean Moses is making an affirmative statement concerning him. This is then followed by more affirmative statements. That may be the case. However, I would think that Moses is invoking or making an appeal to the name of the Lord. In Exodus 34, the Lord proclaimed his name. Here's what it said there. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The Lord's name has been proclaimed. It doesn't need to be proclaimed again. As such, I believe Moses is now invoking that name as a witness against Israel for their corrupt ways that begin to be referenced in verse 5. After this appeal to the name, then the affirmative statements that follow are given to bolster why the Lord is just in his judgments. The introductory words have been stated. The name Jehovah has been invoked and now Moses will call for others to acknowledge this, and then he will proclaim Jehovah's perfections. Verse 3 continues, Ascribe greatness to our God. Havu godel le lohenu. Ascribe you all, plural, greatness to our God. This is to be the natural response to invoking his name. I appeal to the name of Jehovah. We ascribe greatness to his name. The structure of the verse is a standard A-B contrasting parallel. A, for name Jehovah I invoke, singular. B, ascribe you all, plural, greatness to our God. 
It is an acknowledgement of what he is because of who he is. He is great because he is Jehovah. He is our God. And the reason he is great in his being and in our eyes is, verse 4, he is the rock. I'm so sorry they translated it that way. The words are placed absolutely. Hatsur, the rock. That's all it says. It is an indication of permanence, stability, and immutability. It is the first time he is called this in scripture. But it is not the first time he has been equated to this in typology. The Lord as the rock was typologically seen back in Exodus 17, when the rock was struck and then water issued forth. Likewise, Moses was hidden in the rock in Exodus 33. Both times were clear typological anticipations of Christ. Paul explicitly says this concerning the rock and the water in 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Further, the term is specifically cited by both Paul in Romans 9.33 and by Peter in 1 Peter 2.6, as cited from Isaiah 8.14, where the Lord Jehovah is referred to. This is Isaiah 8. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. With these New Testament references to Christ Jesus as the rock being directly equated to Jehovah of the Old Testament, it is without excuse that anyone would deny that scripture indicates that Jesus is Jehovah incarnate. Someone may not believe the Bible or in the Lord, but nobody can honestly deny that the intent of scripture is that Jesus and Jehovah are one and the same. As far as the term itself, four more times the Lord will specifically be called the rock in this chapter, but more, he will twice be contrasted to other rocks, meaning false gods. Of the rock, Moses next says, verse 4 continues, his work is perfect. Rather than how the New King James translates this, the perfection is stated first. Tamim paolo. Tamim is the perfection, and then perfect his work. It is a new word, poal, signifying deeds or work. Being described as tamim means without blemish. It is the word used to describe the sacrificial animals that were presented to the Lord. All that the Lord does is complete, it is sound, and it is flawless. Thus, it is upright. This would include, but not be limited to, his work of creation, interactions, redemption, and salvation. When he purposes something, it will come to pass. As such, it is a note of surety for Israel, both in judgment and in preservation. That's what's important. The Lord will judge perfectly according to his word. The Lord will preserve perfectly according to that same word. In the same manner, because Jesus is the Lord, it is a note of the same for those who are his people. What God does in Christ will be perfectly handled in the judgment of his people, but it will also be in accord with the promise of his salvation. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3. People talk about, can I lose my salvation? Can I not lose my salvation? We just go back and look at Israel. 
God said he will never abandon this group of people, no matter how far apostate they are from him. And he has kept his promise all the way through human history. Here's what it says. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet. So as through fire, verse four continues for all his ways are justice. Kikal derecha mishpat, for all his ways, just. There is one way with the Lord, even if it is expressed in many ways. In other words, his way is just, and thus all his ways are just. He will never deviate from being just. So every avenue that he takes is just. This is not unlike James's words. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The meaning of James' words is that there is no parallax in the Lord. No matter what angle he is viewed from, he is perfectly unchanging. As such, there is no shadow that can move in relation to him. This is essentially how Moses speaks of the Lord now. Further, he is, verse 4 continues, a God of truth and without injustice. El emunah ve'en avel, God of stability and no unrighteousness. The first word is emunah. It signifies firmness, steadfastness, fidelity, and so on. Thus, the sense is stability. The second word is avel, signifying injustice, unrighteousness, moral wrong, and the like. He will not be moved and he will never, ever do wrong. There is no iniquity, bias, or prejudice in him. Rather, he is firm, fixed, and steadfast in his being. I'll stop right there and say that the God presented in the Quran is vindictive and changing. He cannot, according to the first principles, be God because of that. The Bible always presents the Lord in the proper manner. It never deviates from it. And more. Verse 4 continues, righteous and upright is he. The words are emphatic. Sadiq ve'yashar hu, righteous and upright, he. Thus, it is an expression of his very being. The words tzadik and yashar point to that which is righteous and that which is right, straight or upright. The words of Peter in the New Testament tie Christ directly to the thought of Moses now. From Acts 3.14, the W.E.B. version, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. The very being of Christ is one of one that is righteous. The sediment of this verse is at least partly seen in Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, it says. Likewise, the words mirror the description of Christ as he returns in glory in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, 11, now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. What Jehovah does is embodied in the person and actions of Jesus Christ. With this noted, 
we can again, as in verse 2, see the parallelism of the words shining forth in an A, B, A, B structure. A, the rock, perfect is his work. There's stability and no fault. B, for all his ways, just. It expresses his being. A, God of stability and no unrighteousness. He is the rock. He is perfect. And B, righteous and upright. He, it expresses his being again. With this stated, we can, at least from my perspective, next see why Moses invoked the name of the Lord in verse 1. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a people rebellious and without sense. They sing to other gods a distasteful song. The guilt of their iniquity is more than immense. What would the end of them be were it not for the promise that I made? If not for that, they would have perished quickly. They are not worth even the most useless trade. But for my sake, they shall be made right, because I am faithful and true to the words I speak. For them, there will be an end to the fright, when in the future it is me they finally seek. Our third thought today, a perverse and crooked generation. It's verses 5 and 6. Where verses 3 and 4 highlighted the perfections of the Lord, Verses 5 and 6 provide a contrast revealing the imperfections of Israel. Before I go on, and I said this last week, I did not write these words. These words come out of their own scriptures. So if people say, oh, why are you always slamming the Jews? I'm just repeating what the Lord said through Moses, okay? And he will get to the end of it, and he will safely lead Israel to himself. That's coming some years ahead of us. Right now, we have to deal with the world in which we live. We'll go on. Verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. Though almost everyone translates it this way, it is incorrect. The verb is singular, as is the preposition, shichet lo, corruption to him. It can either be a statement concerning the nation or a question concerning the Lord. Therefore, it either says he, Israel, has corrupted himself or is corruption his That would be speaking of the Lord. That's from the JPS Tanakh version. In other words, is corruption found in him or is he the source of corruption? If it is a statement of fact, then the words mirror the words of Isaiah chapter 1 where the same word is used. Here's what it says. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. That word right there. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. If it is a rhetorical question, it is asking if the defect that will be presented is the Lord's fault. If so, the answer is obvious, and it explains why Moses would invoke the name of the Lord in verse 2. Due to the parallelism, I would go with the words of this clause as speaking of Israel, thus forming a parallel. However, it could just as easily be a contrasting parallel. Either way, a matter must be resolved because of his, meaning the Lord's, perfect nature. Verse 5 continues, they are not his children. Lobanov, not his sons. The inserted words are correct. They are not his sons. They can't be because there is no corruption in him. He is perfect in all of his ways. As such, there can be no harmony. The bond is severed. Exactly what happened with Adam when he fell, the bond was severed. The same thing happened with Israel. Verse 5 continues, because of their blemish. The clause is only one word, muman, their blemish. 
the whole thought so far can now be more clearly understood. Is corruption his, or has he corrupted himself? They are not his children. It is their blemish. The people called by the Lord have severed themselves from the family of the Lord. They bear a defect that is of their own doing and was not derived from him. It is the state of Israel of the future. A time is prophesied when the people would be entirely cut off from fellowship with the Lord because of their own doings. They are, verse 5 continues, a perverse and crooked generation. Dor ikesh u petatol, generation twisted and warped. Moses uses two new words. The first is ikesh, signifying distorted, false, crooked, or perverse. It comes from akash, meaning to twist, and it is mostly used in the book of Proverbs. The next word is found only here in all of scripture, petatol. It is derived from patal, to twine, thus to struggle, wrestle, and so on. It signifies being crafty or crooked, like one who is warped and always trying to wrestle off the authority over him. This is the defect that Israel has, and it is not something derived from the Lord, but rather from their own warped senses. Now, before I go on picking on Israel, I think everybody here, at least if they're honest, will look in the mirror and say, that's me too. I'm always trying to twist off the Lord and do it my own way. If you don't, that's fine. I know I do. The words perfectly call to mind what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. With this stated, one can now see the parallelism in an A-B-A-B structure. A, corruption to him. It's a reference to defect. B, not his sons. It identifies the state of Israel. A, their blemish. It's a reference to defect. And a generation twisted and warped. It identifies the state of Israel. The generation that rejected Christ and which still exists to this day is a perverse generation. They bear the defect of having severed themselves from Jesus Christ. Until that is corrected, they are not, and indeed they cannot be, his children. Because of their unwieldy, twisted nature, Moses next asks, verse 6, do you thus deal with the Lord? The order of the words bears an emphatic nature. Ha le Yehovah tigmelu zot. Do to Yehovah, you all, do this? The words would be well paraphrased by saying, is this how you act toward the Lord? It is a question of incredulity. Moses sees the future and he knows the outcome of their conduct, and he is appalled at what he knows is coming. As such, he calls out, verse 6 continues, O foolish and unwise people, am naval velo hakam, people foolish and no wise. It is a new adjective, naval. It signifies a person who is stupid or wicked. He is vile. It is the same as the name of Nabal, which is found in 2 Samuel 25. Thus, it explains the words his wife uses when describing him. Here's what it says there. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Israel is just like Nabal, according to Moses. They are a foolish and unwise people. As such, the following words are said against the previous words that said they are not his sons. Moses says, verse 6 continues, Is he not your father who bought you? Halo hu aviha kanecha, not he your father, your purchaser? The words take 
Israel right back to the first song of Moses. Just after having been brought out from Egypt, there the same word, kana, is used. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. That word there. Thus Moses is saying that even though they are not his children, he is their father. He purchased them, and therefore they will be brought to himself at some point. It is a truth spoken forth as both songs of Moses conclude. Here's what it says at the end of Exodus 15. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And then in this song of Moses, at the very end of it, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. With this understanding, Moses completes the words of the passage for today, saying, verse 6 finishes with, Has he not made you and established you? Again, there is an emphatic nature to the words, Who? Asecha vekonenecha. He made you and established you. The Lord personally intervened in their history time and again in order to bring them into being and then to establish them. There was nothing random about what he did. Rather, everything was, continues to be, and will continue to be purposeful in regard to them. But there is a point of contention that exists between them, and it is a personal defect in the nation. For now, and to understand the parallelism, the following is seen. It is again an A-B-A-B structure. A, do to Jehovah, you, plural, do this. It's a question to the people. B, people foolish and no wise. It is a truth concerning Israel. A, not he, your singular father, your singular purchaser. It's a question to the nation. B, he made you and established you. It is a truth concerning Israel. Until the defect of Israel is resolved, they are not his children, and they are not his people. If you don't understand that, go read the book of Hosea. He's very clear in what he says there. I will call them who are not my people, my people. And then he goes through this entire thing, and guess who cites the book of Hosea? Paul and Peter. Paul says, I will call them who are my people, who are not my people. Speaking of the Gentiles, when he has gotten rid of Israel. And then Peter says, I will call them a people. Or he says, you are now my people. Speaking to the Jews of the end times who weren't his people. So everything follows after this song of Moses in the rest of scripture. Until the defect is resolved, they are not his children and they are not his people. In the coming verses, Moses will show just what the Lord did to establish them, and he will show them in advance exactly what he will do to provoke him, thus cutting themselves off from him. In cutting themselves off, the Lord will respond by cutting them off. Israel's position in the land and as the people of the Lord is solely determined by their actions and their conduct before him. The final state of Israel is set and it is predetermined. He will never, never cut them off completely. And Moses will explain exactly why as he continues. Thus, the severity and the honor of being Israel are tied together in one package. 
it demonstrates the unfailing nature of the Lord that this is so. The same treatment can be expected by each one of us. There can be severity in his hand against us, but there will never again be a separation from him. We have the lesson of Israel and we have the words of the epistles to direct us. In the end, we who are the redeemed of the Lord must make our own choices. Will we be foolish and unwise, thus arousing the Lord's displeasure? Or will we be people of integrity and live for him as we live out our lives? The Song of Moses is written to Israel, but the precepts that are derived from it can be just as easily applied to us. Be wise, be discerning, and be circumspect in your life and your conduct before this great, great God, the Rock. May it be so to his glory. Before we close out today, I would like to remind you that the same God that is presented all the way from Genesis 1-1 to the time of Moses penning out these words right now is the same God that is found all the way through the rest of Scripture. And there is a reason why he gave them this law, and there is a reason why he told them in advance that they would depart from it and that they would again be his people. And it all stems on who he is. And it all stems on one word, faith. The law is not of faith. It is of works. And he introduced the law of Moses to show us the contrast between what we need to please God, which means having faith in him when we can't see him. All we can do is say, there's a tree. The tree didn't pop into existence all by itself. Nothing can come from nothing. Ex nihilo nihil fit. Something had to be there to create something that is a necessary being that cannot not be, and that is God. And if we just simply think these things through, as I said in the Genesis 1-1 sermon, you'll get that. You'll be able to think more clearly on why there must be a God. And then from there, you can understand that we can't see him, but we see the results of what he has done, and we have a choice now. Are we going to honor this God, or are we going to say, I'm just not going to believe him, I'm going to go do my own thing? And so along the path of time, which has already had a bunch of human beings screw up, the Lord picks out Israel and he says, I'm going to do something through you that will just be astonishing. And he gives them what is called the law. Well, the law isn't a faith at all, but it's to show us that what we need to be pleasing to him is faith. And that's the lesson of the law. It's to lead us to Jesus Christ. And that's the lesson of Israel. 1,450 years of living under this law and every single person that lived under that law with one exception who was taken directly to glory, has died. The man who does the things of the law will live, and then nobody does the things of the law, even the great King David. His tomb is right here in Jerusalem for you to see, it says. So what's the, what's the purpose of the law? It's to show us our need for Jesus Christ. So he sent his son under this law. The God of the universe gave them this law, and then he came under this law to prove that he is willing to make atonement for us, to bring us back to himself. And so he's born under the law without sin. He lives under the law without sin. That's what the purpose of the four gospels is, to show us the God-man who is willing to do the incredible to bring us back to himself. And then he gave up his life in exchange for all of the baggage that we all have in our own lives. I am doing this for you. You know, my brother told me one time he was driving down the road and there was a billboard. It had a picture of Jesus up there. And it says, if I'm okay and you're okay, then what am I doing up here? Uh, uh -huh. Things are not okay. And Jesus came to take care of that. 
and to bring us back to himself. And he died in fulfillment of the law. And then he said, in me, there is new life. And he established a new covenant, a covenant without law. Sin is no longer imputed. And if we simply believe, we will be saved. But the lesson of Israel had to be given to show us the faithfulness of God so that when we screw up after being saved by Jesus Christ, we can say he's still faithful to them. I know he will be faithful to me. Thank God for Jesus Christ, who is faithful and true. And all God asks you to do is one simple thing. You don't have to give money to the church. You don't have to go be a missionary in a foreign country. You just have to believe Christ died for your sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. If you can believe those three premises, you will be saved, and it will be forever, and you will walk in the garden of God once again with the redeemed of the Lord. Please do it today. Our closing verse, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. Somebody in the congregation is doing something wrong. Deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The guy is saved, he is saved, and Paul never questions that. But he says, he wants to live that way, just get him out of the congregation so he doesn't infect it. But that man is saved. Thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ. The people of Israel were handed over to Satan to suffer because of their conduct before the Lord. The sinner at Corinth was handed over as well. However, Israel the nation, as well as that wayward sinner, will find that God is ultimately faithful even when they were not. Next week is Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 14, slowly pecking away at it until it is through. It's entitled The Song of Moses. Part two. That'll be our 94th Deuteronomy sermon. Thank you, Jay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? All right, I told you I'm not gonna make these questions easy anymore, and that's because I explained it last week, they weren't here, so I'm gonna explain it again. We can't remember everything in the Bible, it's just not possible, it's just one of those things, that it's just so big and complicated, but one thing we can do is we can read the Bible every day of our lives, and maybe you are reading in the book that I am going to ask this question from. And if so, then I'm going to compliment you either for your great memory from having remembered or for having read the book recently and there you remembered just offhand. Okay, either way, I'm not making them as easy as I used to just because I want you to read your Bible. That's the purpose of this. In 2 Kings 26, it says, This king had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. Who is it referring to? That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I would always remember this simply because of that. I, you know, I wrote 2 Kings 26 and there was no, it might be 2 Kings 2, 6 because whatever. I wrote 2 Kings 26 and it's not. Uh, so I'm glad I checked this because I said that. Um, two, no, it's not that either. Anyway, I, will, I wrote the wrong verse. 2 Kings, it might be 1 Kings 26. I don't know. That's why we can't get the right Well, you get the right answer. You'll get the right answer. You just won't get the right source. No, there, there is no 2 Kings 26, but it is King Uzziah. U-Z-Z-I-A-H. Uzziah. Okay, he loved the soil. Okay, I wrote the wrong reference, but I will give you a bonus because I screwed it up so badly. And this is a question I asked you recently. 
What happened to King Uzziah later in his life? Leprosy. Okay, you all win. Good. All right, I got a poem for you and we'll be done. The Song of Moses, part one. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak out. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Hear my shout. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. As raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass, may they be to you. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Hear my word. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, as all the world can see. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children, this disobedient nation, because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is this what you do? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful blessings of this life. Thank you for your word, which is so wonderful. It's so filled with richness and beauty. And yet it's filled with admonitions and warnings. Help us to be wise and to apply the precepts of your word to our lives so that when we stand before you someday, we will receive blessing and eternal life in your presence instead of condemnation and something far, far worse than we can imagine. Lord, you are God, you are great, and you are glorious. And we thank you for what you've done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, give me one second. I've got to do something. All right because it's going to drive me absolutely insane if I don't give you the right verse on that. And, you know, I'm going to blame Claudia because we were here alone earlier and she walked in while I was doing that question. And so I was kind of hiding there. So I'm blaming her on it. Okay, actually, no, it was me. I just picked the run. I do this a lot. You know, I look at things and let me see if the New King James Version and we'll try that. This will only take a moment to get it for you, but I want you to have the right version. Uh, Did you make it too hard for yourself? Uh, No, I didn't make it too hard. Oh, it's two Chronicles. That's what it was. I said two kings, two Chronicles 26.10. Also, he built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. It's two Chronicles, not two kings. So, such is life. Okay. Yeah, listen, that would have driven me crazy. If I didn't give you the right verse, I, it would have driven me crazy. Well, the reason why I like that verse so much is because, oops, the reason why I like that verse so much is because 